Now today we're going to pick up in Exodus 32. And we're just going to look at the first six verses together in Exodus 32. Who, who can recall what is, what is the purpose of the law? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's pointing to God's holiness. It's pointing out man's sinfulness and man's need for a mediator. And where the law instructs the conduct of a relationship, the the covenant is the establishing of that particular relationship. And here we're, you know, in the midst of what some call the Mosaic covenant or the Sinaitic covenant or the Israelite covenant. And what God is doing is establishing a relationship with his people. And one of the things that he's instructing them in and concerns of that, that relationship is that it's possible to have. You know, it's possible to have that Garden of Eden sort of relationship with them again. To, it's possible to move back into the mountain city where God dwells, and God wants that kind of relationship with his people. That's how creation began. That's what man fell out of and what man needs to enter back into but what you see with the tabernacle is that, well, God is dwelling in the Holy of Holies, but man isn't. You know, he's outside in the courtyard, and he needs to be able to be brought into that holy place somehow. But who does that? Who does God teach them? Uh, who does God teach, teach that they could bring them into the holy place? priest. And what would that priest have to do to be able to bring people back into God's holy presence? Yeah, they have to be consecrated, made holy, atonement. You know, that's that's the key word. They have their sin has to be atoned for. Previously, we had talked about the tabernacle and the priest and how they were dressed the same. You know, they were, they were both adorned in such a way to reflect God's glory. But what you saw at the tabernacle is God dwelled inside of the tabernacle. But since the priests were uh, dressed the same, what would, the connection was, that was to be made is God's plan is to dwell in man, not just among him and with him, but in him. And so all all of the tabernacle, all of the priest, all of the furniture and the clothing was to be holy to the Lord because everything in creation was made to belong to God and to reflect the glory of God. And gold was a reminder of that. Gold was a reminder of God's glory being reflected in his world. And when you read through the materials of the tabernacle. You remember, we you have the colors of the sky in it to communicate the truth that the, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sort of stones and gold and everything that gets mentioned gets 
repeated throughout Scripture, but especially when you get to the New Jerusalem at the very end of the Bible in Revelation, it's like, oh, all this stuff has come back. It's like, oh, the, the tabernacle showed up. The reflection of God's glory has showed up. He has come to dwell among men. So when, when we're reading Scripture, one of the things we want to keep in mind is that, that wider context, you know, the, the bookends of Scripture, the first two chapters and the last two chapters which are the only chapters with no sin. And everything else in between is how do we go back to that, that state? How do we go back to the place in God's holy presence and there's no sin, there's no separation, there's just that perfect, holy relationship. When we come to Exodus chapter 32, we see that with God given the, the tabernacle worship instruction, there's two different things going on in the context here. One is immense privilege, and the other one is immense sin, as we're going to see. The immense privilege is that God is tying a people to the purpose of his creation, which is to make his, his name, his glory known to the ends of the earth. But you see this tension in that, well, they're separated from God, but they're invited to participate in worshiping him. And while this tremendous privilege has been given to them that they would be a kingdom of priests who would you know, mediate God's presence to the other surrounding nations to bridge you know, another greater separation, but you know, their own separation from God needs to be dealt with itself. So even though God had given this great privilege, immense privilege to them, they continue in their immense sin. So when you think about reading Exodus up to this point, is it, is it any great surprise that the people would commit immense sin at this point? Are you surprised and thinking, I didn't see this coming? Or are you thinking, that's typical? One of the things that you you should see within this is that God's plan isn't only horizontal. It's not just, he didn't say, oh, I know what you guys need, a moving truck. So let's load you up and move you from here, here to there, and that'll fix everything. But what, what the law is instructing here is pointing out you need something more than that. Uh, you need something that's not just horizontal, but vertical. Uh, you need a heart that fears God. And this is tying back into the example that was given to Israel at the beginning of this book with what people that, that feared God. The Hebrew midwives. Now, they're the ones who feared God at the beginning of the book. And one of the things you want to think about when you're Reading through the the Torah, the first five books is the Genesis through Deuteronomy is the context for Genesis through Deuteronomy. So when they were given, when these books were given to the people, a lot of these things already had happened. So you know when they're hearing about Eden in Genesis chapter one, they're thinking tabernacle. They're thinking Adam's like a priest. You know he's like these things that we have already learned about, but they're seeing that was always God's plan from the very beginning for 
him to, to dwell with us. And he's always planned to deal with that separation through some sort of sacrifice and providing some sort of atonement covering. And they're, they're seeing how it develops. So you want to think about, you know, if you were an Israelite that had lived through all of these things and you're going back and reading these things, hearing these things, what sort of connections would you be making in your mind? And uh, that helps you to understand what's happening here, which Moses living among these people, you remember when God tells him to go to Israel for the first time, he, and he says, they're not going to listen to me. They're not going to believe this. You know, who, who should I say sent me? He's asking these sort of questions. And God gives them three signs to testify against Israel's unbelief, which is going to be you know, built into their judicial system of having you know, two or three witnesses to justify any testimony against somebody else. So occasionally you see the fickle Israelites, they'll profess belief, they'll say that they're going to obey, but you see that just doesn't prove to be the case most of the time. And even after the Red Sea event had, had happened, they say, well, it would have been better to die in Egypt than to be delivered from all of that stuff. And the word that we use to describe that sort of behavior is apostasy. That's this idea of uh, willfully choosing to, to turn against the, the truth that you have come to know. Like you've seen it, you've experienced it outside of yourself at least, but you're saying it would be better to have never experienced any of those sort of things or have you know, tasted any of the miracle work of God at all. We would rather be dead than have seen and experienced those things. So here you see that the law is doing what the law does. You know, the law instructs. It, it points out that men are sinful. And now that the law has been given, it's doing what it does. It's pointing out their sin. So when we come to see the Israelites gathered together here, the, the first time they were assembled, it was to receive the Ten Commandments. Now they're assembling to break every single one of them. So the, the law is pointing out, this is what you guys are like. And then what they're doing is going, check, check, check <laughs> on every single one of them. So as we start, as we read through these first six verses, consider those thoughts as... I read Exodus 32, 1 through 6. Then the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. So the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Arise, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. 
And Aaron looked and built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Let's, let's pray as we continue studying God's word together here. Our gracious Lord, here we see your holiness, your righteousness, the rightness of your law, instruction, and how all humans have the inability to keep it, the total inability to live by that righteousness, and an immense capacity to go against every instruction that you have ever given and to make gods in our own image. We pray that you would help us to see not only your rightness, but that you would turn us away from any idolatry in our own lives as we see the failure of the sons of Israel so long ago. Give us a holy fear to walk in your holy way as we read your word together this morning. Amen. Starting there in verse 1, it says, The people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. What do you think this exposes about the people and their perception of the situation? Yeah. I read that Moses had been away for like only three days, something like that. Yeah, it it had not been long. They can still see it. I mean, they're still at Sinai. They're still seeing the the cloud around it. It's right in front of them. Uh, And they had just got tired of waiting. You know, they, they wanted things to be immediate. You know, he goes up and he comes down right away. And it's, you know, we're, we're tired of waiting. And according to our, our own hearts, we have some other things we would rather be doing. But the, the law should have been fresh on their minds. Right? They, just, they had just heard it. Uh, they should have been considering their actions in light of the Ten Commandments and going, wait a second. If you do that, you die. You break one of them, you die. You try to you know, approach the mountain the wrong way, worship God the wrong way, you die. So, so the people assembled about Aaron. And remember, he's the high priest guy. And they said to him, Arise, make us gods. In your Bible translation, you might just have God, singular, and then probably a footnote that says it could be uh, plural gods with an S. The better translation is to have it as gods in the plural because all the verbs that are being used alongside that are plural verbs. This uh, is a word we had talked about in the past that translates Elohim, and the em at the end is a plural, but plural doesn't always mean that it's plural. You know, it could just be when it's used of God, when it's in the beginning of the Bible, you know, Elohim created everything. And sometimes this word is translated, you know, God as God the creator. Sometimes it's gods in plural. But what, what they're saying is, you know, they don't want the only creator God. They want to make their own gods. They don't want the only God who made them. They want to make gods in their own image according to their own appetites and preferences. And they, and they won't 
ones who will go before us and say, as for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt. Now, is that, is that accurate? Was it the man who had, had brought them up? No. Should that have been obvious? You know, like pillar of fire, pillar of cloud, like something other than Moses was doing that. But you can see, they're telling you how they saw it. They only saw Moses, the man. And they said of him, we do not know what has become of him. So not only were they blind to the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, but they're also deaf to everything that was just declared from the mountain. We do not know what has become of him. What do you mean? (laughs) You just heard a, a voice from heaven and you trembled before it and thought you were going to die when you heard what it said. So as these people assemble to break the Ten Commandments, part of the irony of this is that Aaron, Aaron is the one leading the people in all of this stuff, and Aaron was the guy that Moses thought he needed to do all of these things. He was to be the spokesperson for Moses. But you remember when God commanded Moses to go speak to Pharaoh. He didn't say, I want you to do this and you're going to need some help. It was out of Moses' rebellion that he was saying, you know, I'm not the guy for this. And now you're seeing the, the Lord's going to be teaching Moses that. You never needed Aaron. And you see what Aaron ends up doing is that instead of being a, a spokesperson for God, he, he ends up being reversing his role and being a spokesperson for the false gods. So that was the irony with him God using him to speak. Yeah, just, just like Moses needed to be refined and is being refined, that needs to happen with Aaron as well. And you're going to see that throughout his life as you continue to follow that. You know what? What happens to Moses is is what God is going to do with Israel. Just like he promises to deliver them, they come to him with unbelief, and he starts healing their unbelief. He's going to do that with Aaron. He's going to do that with Israel over time. But you see here that Moses didn't really actually need Aaron. Aaron was, he didn't even have to be pressured by the people to do these things. He just uh, he's kind of like the ultimate pushover in the Bible. And what, what we're seeing here is what we, what we might call a corporate apostasy, where the people are saying, you know, make us gods. And even though these people have been taken out of Egypt, you see that Egypt hadn't been taken out of them. You know, they still worshipped that same way. They still thought about the world in that same way. You know, it's not Yahweh who's in charge of things. It's all the other gods that we know, and we need to make them. So you see immediately what they're doing and gathering together is they're breaking the first commandment. Yeah, they don't want one God. They don't even want to. They don't even want a God that they would call Yahweh. They don't want to make another Yahweh. They just want a, a total, totally different substitute. 
one of the things that we've seen in coming up to this point, and when I say, well, Moses the man brought us up, is if you pay attention in your reading up to this point, it was that word brought is only used of Yahweh God throughout the text. So, you know, uh, Yahweh commanded, Yahweh brought. You never see, you know, Moses did that, but you see the people misinterpreting God's providence. God is the creator and controller of history and not Moses. It's not Moses who brings, but only Yahweh who does. So in a sense, they're, they're atheist relative to Yahweh. And you're seeing the human condition here and that men are blind and deaf toward the God who sees and hears. You know, they don't image him as they ought. They, they deny that they ever saw anything, that they ever heard anything from him. And you see that not even a miracle done before somebody can bring them to trust in God. And even if a man was raised to dead right in front of them, they wouldn't believe, which is what Jesus said to the Pharisees. Because he, he knows what is in man. So what the sons of Israel are doing is suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. They did see those things. They did hear those things. They were miraculously attested to them. But they're willfully suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Uh, they're like Pharaoh with his hardened heart. When it's, you know, the obvious thing to do would be to, to believe Yahweh, to listen to him, to do what he says. But a hardened heart will have none of it. What we're seeing here is that sin is more sinful than we know. Deceit is more deceitful than we know. That people aren't, they're not just merely sick with sin, but they're actually dead in sin. You know, they, don't, they don't have any ability to bring themselves to God, even if he does all sorts of miracles out, outside of them. Uh, a miracle needs to be done within them. You know, light needs to shine out of their darkened hearts if they're ever to believe. Coming to verse 2, what Aaron says to the people is to tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters and bring them to me. So Aaron, who is supposed to be the voice of God to the people, becomes the voice of paganism. He was supposed to be the, the messenger to Pharaoh, but in the sense he's kind of the messenger for the power behind Pharaoh, which was Satan. So how would you describe these people? What kind of people are these? You can pick all sorts of words that start with S. Same as us. Same as us. Sinful, stubborn, stiff-necked. Stiff yeah. Uh, I'm curious. I'm sorry. I was a little practical in what's going on here, but they have been slaves. So basically, I'm thinking they have very little. So this is mostly 
Yes. Yeah. So remember, what was, so we'll start with, uh, where, where did they get that gold? Yeah. Yeah, it was gold that was stolen from God and misused by the Egyptians. God, through you know, the retribution of the Israelites, you know, he gives them you know, the wages that were due to them but not given to them. And they get that gold, and then what, is, what does God tell them to do with that gold? Yeah, it was a tabernacle worship materials that signify, you know, everything is to reflect the glory of God. So now they're doing what the Egyptians did. You know, they're, seeing, they're, they're stealing that gold and the glory from God. You know, this isn't to reflect the, the glory of God. Uh, you could think about it like in terms of a, a designated gift. So when, you know, you give, uh, you know, you donate to a, a particular cause, like when we have the, the harvest offer, and we, we restrict that towards, you know, people who are, you know, ex extending the gospel message beyond this body somehow, you know, particularly our, our missionaries. Now, what if we you know, took the money, we told everybody we were going to use the money for that, and then we just expanded the playground. And we built an adult playground. Well, we would not be using the designated gift for the specific purpose. And, you know, what, which we would say, you know, you guys stole that money. You didn't, you didn't use it for what you should have. And so that's what they're doing here. They're, they're stealing God's glory and his gold, but the gold that was to you know, image that glory to, to them, to teach them and to the nations. So part of the stupidity of you know, Aaron's idea for the, you know, the Israelites are saying, you know, Moses, is, he's taken way too long. Aaron says, I have an idea. Let's steal stuff from God. You know, he's the high priest, and he's a, he's a, you know, he's supposed to be moving toward building the tabernacle. All of this stuff is supposed to do, is, and he's thinking, oh, God's given all of this stuff for those those reasons. Let's steal it from him. Nobody pressured Aaron to do this. He he actually just suggested as an idea for everybody. And the developing plot of Scripture gives us a, a perspective on men. The, you know, the, the sin that's in our hearts is absolute insanity. It, it never makes sense to sin ever. And, and sin is always treachery against the, the covenant of God who he made us to be in relationship with him. But we say, we're not going to have that kind of relationship. Uh, we're not going to have you in the relationship, and we're not going to have it on your terms. Uh, we're going to make our own gods and do things our own way. I don't imagine that any of you uh, 
struggle with putting the leaders of Israel on a pedestal and like look through, you know, biblical history and say, oh, well, you know, one of the Israelites said it, so it's probably true. <laughs> you know, on this one, I mean, I, just reading through this, I look at Aaron. Yeah, there's certain things, about, you know, about Moses before, you know, the burning bush event, where you can see elements of personal character that, you know, God's going to use and bring in, in a way that will be a blessing to people. I don't see anything in Aaron. <laughs> you know, frankly, I see God's forbearance of Aaron to be just extraordinary. Because what he brings to the table, in effect, <laughs> constitutes basically not a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he brought, yeah, but you know, it's like where where do you find any trace or anything like that? You know, examples of people that we see in other parts of scripture, you know, whether it's David or an Isaiah or something like that. Aaron? Where are the qualities? <laughs> I mean, I see a whole lot of myself in Aaron, but I don't see a whole lot of godliness in Aaron. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, God, God is choosing the foolish things of the world. Yeah. And, and you, you highlighted something that, you know, gets, gets brought out more as you keep going through Exodus and that, you know, that their immense sin is being contrasted against God's immense grace. Mm-hmm. Because you're, he's brought them out to deliver them and they don't deserve it. They don't want it. And he doesn't just bag the whole tabernacle project after this. He says, even though you did that, even though this is happening right now, he says, I'm still moving forward with everything. I'm still, I'm still keeping you people. Every, everything is going to still develop forward exactly as planned and everything in creation is moving into my rest. But what the law is doing is it's, it's holding up a mirror. It says, you know, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this to show this is what you're like. And so that you'll see we need to be different than we are if we're going to have this relationship with God. But the, the only one who can help us is God. You know, we can't bring ourselves uh, out of this state. So there's something of you're, you should be shocked by the sin of Aaron, but you should also be you know, even more shocked by God's compassion toward a guy like that. You see, even with their their wives and their sons and daughters, from which they took all of the this gold. That you know, remember that back in Exodus twenty-two, uh, God communicated to him the the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You see, it, everything belongs to God, but they weren't seeing it as they ought. And this wasn't you know, just some of the people. If you look in verse 3, it says, Then all the people tore off the gold rings. So, you know, there, there's nobody righteous. There's nobody who seeks God. There's nobody who understands. You know, there's, there's none who are good, not even one. And they took that stuff and they, they brought them to Aaron. And I think you're kind of picking up that you know, Exodus... 32 is, you know, very much the basis for Romans chapter 1. It's like all the stuff that he's addressing and talking about in that chapter is from remembering this event. So you see the the sin is uh, comprehensive. You know, uh, all of them sin and fall short of the glory of God. 
And so much so they want to take the gold, which is to reflect that, that glory, and give it to another. And even this, this problem is not unique to this time in history either. As you go on, it, it happens again with Gideon and the Israelites. They have another problem. Gideon, what should we do? He says, give me all your gold rings. And some of us just said, this is bad. This is not good. We, we have read about this. We've heard about this. Yeah, it's you know, just shout a warning and run away. <laughs> Aaron, in verse 4, it says he took this from their hand and he, he fashioned it. He fashioned the gold with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said... These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now, we don't have time to look through all of these cross-references. You might just write these down for later. Nehemiah 9.18 talks about this event. Nehemiah 9.18 mentions you know, Israel made this calf. God showed them compassion. Psalm 106.19, Psalm 106.19 is a verse that talks about, you know, they exchanged the glory of God for ox and animals. You know, it's that, that sort of text that gets echoed in Romans 1. And the last reference I get is Acts 7.41. And Acts 7.41 is Stephen retells Israelite history. He tells them that they made this golden calf and they didn't worship God as they ought. And then he says, but God. You know, in contrast, even though they they were sinful like that, God was holy and gracious and compassionate like this toward people like yourselves. Now, that word fashioned there, it speaks of Aaron fashioning this image with his hands. What does that sound like? You're an Israelite. You've lived through all of this sort of stuff. You start reading the Bible from the beginning. What's something that might... Yeah, God fashioned man in his own image. And, and you're thinking, man, that sounds like when... Aaron fashioned God's and the people's image. And in Genesis 2.22, it says, Yahweh God fashioned the rib which he had taken from the man and to a woman, and he brought her to the man. But now you have that same sort of language being used, but it's Aaron fashioned the gold which he had taken from the people into a golden calf and brought it to the people. The Bible begins with telling us that God made man in his own image, but now man rebels by making God's in their own image. So which commandment is broken here? Number two, the second one, you shall not make yourself an idol. So the response was, let's make one with a graving tool. Check, we have broke that one. And it's declared to the people that, you know, these are your gods, O Israel. 
they're making a, a total replacement of Yahweh to rob him of glory. And what, what you see is that the, the two commandments that Israel struggle the most with are the ones that are given the most detail. That's number two and number four. You know, don't, don't make a graven image. Don't make any sort of idol. They got lots of instruction on that. And that's the thing, one of the things they struggled with the most. The next thing is the Sabbath. They got lots of instruction about God's Sabbath rest. But you see in their, their struggle with the two commandments in which they get the most detail, it shows that they didn't want God or his rest. They, they wanted an, an idol and burdens. And you see a connection to them making an idol in place of in place of God and also a feast in place of the Sabbath here. So in verse 5, it says, Aaron looked and he built an altar before it, which this was not the altar that he was instructed to build. And he made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. Now, was this a feast that Yahweh had commanded them? He's like, he's, no, he's, he says, here's a counterfeit altar and a counterfeit Sabbath for you guys. Counterfeit gods, counterfeit everything. Which here you see the fifth commandment broken by extension where men are taught to honor the authority of their parents, which was, you know, I remember this little try I gave you on how these tie into commandments of such as honoring God as the only singular authority over you. And the way that this gets applied throughout scripture, it's the idea that you, you honor God's authority and any delegated authority that he has placed over you. But what you see here is that Aaron is abusing that. He, he's not leading the people to, to honor God, but to dishonor God. You know, he's not fulfilling the, the role of governance delegated to him, and the people are led astray by that. So Aaron's perver perverting, honoring authority. He's abusing and misusing his own authority to lead others to dishonor God. So with you know, a counterfeit altar for a counterfeit tabernacle worship, they get a counterfeit feast in place of the Sabbath, which is breaking the fourth commandment, and all at the same time breaking the third commandment, which is use, using the Lord's name in vain. Because you remember, they were to be holy unto the Lord. You know, it was embroidered in the clothes of the priest to be set apart to the Lord rather than trying to set apart Yahweh among other gods that you've made or to set him apart outside of your camp. You know, he, he can't even be here. Only the gods that we have created can be here. And one of the things you see within this deception is that it, it all sounded like the real thing. Because let's see, oh yeah, yeah, Yahweh told us to make some stuff. He told us to use gold and build stuff for worship. He told us to use an altar. He told us to have a feast. We're doing all the right things. Uh, you can see their, their self-righteous justification in all of this. You know, we, we said that we would obey everything that you commanded. And look, 
We use the gold. We've got an altar. We're having feast. How could you be angry with us? Verse 6. This point that you're making about uh, using God's name in vain reminds me of a a podcast discussion that I recently heard where a person was talking about how we can conventionally misunderstand that, that idea, suggesting that well, if you use God's name as a curse word or something like that, that's what it means to use God's name in vain. The person talking was making a reference to this passage where we see the idea of using God's name in vain was here you have someone who is in a position to be a representative of God, but is misappropriating or misdescribing who God is or who God makes himself or declares himself to be. So this peace to Yahweh which is in no way honoring God as he reveals himself or enacting uh, a feast because God declares it, but is in, a, in, in this way presuming right. an idea about God or a celebration of God that God himself did not, does not offer. So within the, the commandments here, you know, you're supposed to have only one God and not make any idols. That's how you honor him. Okay? The, the Sabbath is about entering into his rest and not coveting, not wanting anything different than what is his. The third commandment on taking the Lord's name in vain is tied into uh, no murder, uh, adultery, lying, stealing. See, that's that idea of you know, t- taking the Lord's name in vain. It's not just that you use his, his name as a curse word, but it's you live contrary to the image that he's told you to live in. Yeah, it, it's those things, which is, uh, they're, that's exactly what they're doing with uh, all of their worship, and they're, they're do, doing breaking commandments six through nine and all of that, which gets brought out at this point. So in verse 6, so the next day they rose early and they offered burnt offerings, brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. They had counterfeit burnt offerings and counterfeit peace offerings. Now these were the offerings of total dedication and fellowship, but there's, they're, what they're showing is that their total dedication and fellowship was to themselves, the serpent, and their sin. And these were the offerings that were supposed to inaugurate Israel's relationship to their Redeemer from Egypt, but they're going to instead say they're going to inaugurate it around the gods that they create. Where it says they rose to eat, drink, and, and play, this is what exposes, you know, commandment number 
10, which is their covetous heart. They've always wanted something different to eat than what God had given them. They've always wanted something different to drink than what God had given them. And the idea of uh, play here uh, has, has sexual overtones to it. You know, they didn't want the kind of marriage covenant relationship that God had commanded them to have. So in this, they're uh, committing adultery. They're not showing, they're not imaging God's faithfulness. And this, that word play is tied into breaking everything in the 10th commandment, which is uh, not coveting your neighbor's house, like their gold in particular, or your neighbor's wife or slaves or animals or any other thing that belongs to your neighbor. But in exchanging the truth of God for lies, you know, results in them being given over to their covetous sexual deviance. Again, as that's talked about in Romans 1. So every command gets broken in this chapter, which we'll see next week later when Aaron comes to explain to Moses what had happened. He bears false witness about it, showing that you know while Moses was wrong, they were sitting at table with the father of lies. Israel's going to be guilty of murder by bringing righteous judgment upon themselves as many will be slain because of this sin which was committed among the camp. So do you think that Israel can change on their own? Maybe they just need better laws. Maybe a little more fine print, a few more restrictions, that'll fix them. You see, the, the law was never meant to save. The law was never meant to, to transform people or societies. Uh, people are totally unable to, to be transformed by those things. What, what they need is to be transformed from within by a God who makes holy. And as we'll see you know, next week, God's going to refer to you know, these people when he talks to Moses as your people. You know, he's, he's communicating the separation. He's communicating the, the disassociation with the severity of their separation, and he's disassociating with that and with them as people. Israel can't change on their own. They can't bring themselves to God, but it is God's plan to dwell with man. So one of the things you, you learn as you're reading through Scripture is that you can't just move somebody to another place. You can't put them in another situation to where they'll love God all of a sudden. Florida won't do that to you. Uh, you, you can move there, and, and it, won't, it won't make you uh, love God. But what, it, what this shows is uh, something vertical has to happen something that not only moves you on, on an earthly plane, but in a heavenly one. But you're also seeing that God's redemption plan can't work unless there's an exodus of Egypt out of their hearts. Yeah, the redemption, it's not done, but what he's doing is he's 
He's pointing out where they're at and what needs to be done. Again, and that's the whole purpose of the law. It's pointing out their sin and pointing them to the fact that they need another mediator. So what, what is it that you think that you know, us reading this text thousands of years later should learn from it? Yeah, and he's, he's using them as, as an example to point to those sort of realities and say, this is what you, you really need. Uh, you can't just hear God's law and say, all right, we'll, we'll obey it, and that'll change everything. Because it doesn't work like that. It also reveals to me the, the depth of our own depravity. The, the way that you see Israel declining into this ultimate apostasy and idolatry it starts out with them being blind to the perverseness of their desires and then the capacity that they have, this extraordinary ability to rationalize and justify those desires to themselves so that they make sense. You know, and that reveals so much about how we can be blind to our own blindness. You know, we, there's a way that seems right to a man that ultimately leads to death. And that's what we see. They, they perceive themselves to be doing what is right. <laughs> right. right. And that's what's terrifying. We can be blind to that in so many ways. Yeah. You're keying in on what the Bible calls idolatry. You know, that's you know, us doing what, what is right in our own eyes. That's one of the things that we're warned about in 1 Corinthians 10, and that's where we'll end. If you'll turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10, you'll see how this text is applied in that chapter. All right, starting in 1 Corinthians 10, you'll hear the, the connections. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were struck down in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. So you see, you know, a lot of times you know, our idolatry and covetousness, it's tied to eating, drinking, and sex. So verse 80 says, nor let us act in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a day. 
He says, don't, don't be idolaters. And here's the next thing. Nor let us put Christ to the test. You remember that, that they put him to, they, they were testing his faithfulness. Like he said he would uh, righteously judge us if we disobeyed him. Let's test that. Let's find out if he's really going to do that. He says, nor let us put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Here's the three things that you want to see in their example. Don't be idolaters. Don't put Christ to the test. Don't grumble. Like, well, why did these things happen? Verse 11. Now, these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction. Right? That's what the law does. It, it instructs, and, and it still does that. You know, when we read Exodus 32, it still instructs us in these things, upon whom the ends of the ages have arrived. But maybe you think, oh, I would never do that. I mean, if an Aaron came among us and had some crazy idea, I would never do that. It says, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. He said, but what if I have fallen? What if I have given into things like that? Does that mean that uh, there, I can't have that kind of relationship with God? That I couldn't endure something like that because I, I'm, I'm so wretched? Well, verse 13 says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So, well, what, why can you do that? I mean, why are you able to do the work of fleeing from idolatry? Because God is at work. And the work that he's began in you, he's going to finish it. And so we work because God is at work. As you know, we've heard preach from Philippians. He says, I speak, I speak as to prudent people. You judge what I say. It's not the cup of blessing with uh, which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ. You can hear the, the drinking and eating in there. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? They sent, you know, whatever people are taking partake of it. Everybody gets involved in it somehow. He says, well, what do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. So there's an interpretation on, you know, what's really going on with the, the golden calf and in Egypt. So it's demons, not God. He says, I, I did not want you to become sharers and demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So you hear there, like, what that does is it, it provokes God to jealousy because he's a jealous God. He's jealous for his own glory. And you're not stronger than him. And that you can come up with a better substitute glory to replace him with. When, when you make an idol, you have made nothing. That's what he's, and he's going to get into helping them understand, you know, conscience issues in relation to that when they're like, well, the people sacrifice this stuff to idols. He says, they don't exist. They've actually made nothing. But we don't want to be given to the idolatry of worshiping the nothing. 
which is, you know, maybe in our day that's influenced through uh, Darwinism mostly, you know, the worship of nothingness and death to say, you know, you were created by mass death. Uh, you came out of nothing. And, it, and Darwin is not meaning to quote Aaron there. <laughs> it just showed up. It, well, one of the things that if you, if you study Egyptian cosmology, it actually, you read Darwinism before Darwin. You know, you read evolutionism before evolution. You know, those sort of ideas that, of loving death and there being nothing, which means there, there's no God, so come up with something else, anything else. Just, we know that that's wrong, so anything else can be right. Which well, so I can see you giving away back pretty much imagination. He just recycles his schemes throughout human history. Yeah, <laughs> and it's only counterfeits on what God has made. Because there, there isn't any new things to be made. You know, there can only be corruptions of what is. So with that, we'll close in prayer and continue in our fellowship. Our gracious Lord, we pray as we study Exodus 32 and see the sinful heart of man on display that we would understand something more of ourselves and have a holy fear of being given over to sin and deceit ourselves and to have a holy fear of you, but to also have a great trust and confidence in your ability to protect us from such temptation and your ability to change our hearts and to guide our steps and to protect us. Pray that we would not be idolaters as we have read about, that we had never put your faithfulness to the test by our sin to see if you would truly discipline us or not. We pray that we would not grumble about your providence and how you provide for us day to day, but to trust you and to see your goodness and what you mean to teach us by the way that you have ordered our days and our time and the events of our life, that you would protect us in being faithful to you and giving you alone glory, eating unto you, drinking unto you, and whatever we do, that it would all be done to your glory and your glory alone. Amen.